0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Good to be with you guys. I tell you what, it's good to be part of a church that um, isn't interested in maintaining a kind of facade. You know that church facade, the happy clappy, like my world is burning down, but I'm, I'm just full of the joy of the Lord at all times. I'm glad we don't have that here. Um, speaking to these guys this morning, and exchanging greetings, uh, there was no fake, you know, everything's just wonderful at the moment. Because it's not. It's, uh, it's really hard. Uh, the longer lockdown drags on, the harder it is. Um, the more uncertainty we have about the future, the harder it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, we don't need to hide that fact. Um, m- most Christians, for most of Christian history have had it very hard. And, um, I've noticed that something has shifted in my prayer life. I didn't really recognize it until just yesterday, um, at the prayer meeting we had. But, uh, I've noticed that I'm praying a whole lot more than usual, I'm praying, come Lord Jesus. I don't know if you've had that experience yourself, but just praying a lot like, Jesus, please come and fix this mess. Um, please come and renew all things. Please come and crush your enemies of, of Satan and, and sin and death and disease and, and, and make all things new. I don't know if you've been praying that, but I think we should be. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, That's our hope as believers. And believers always, particularly those who have been suffering, have always prayed that prayer. Uh, Their hope has been not in this world, which is offering them little to nothing, um, but in the world that is to come. And that obviously, as we've said time and again, is the meta theme of this whole book. 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking to a church that's being persecuted, living in a, in a in an empire, the Roman empire, that demands absolute fealty, absolute fidelity. And they've turned away from the worship of Caesar to so the worship of the Lord Jesus. They're suffering as a result of it. And so he wants to encourage them. And where he goes, he goes to the second coming of Jesus. That's the hope that we have, the unshakable Christian hope. And... Um, and so, the prayers that we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come to have a deeper, richer, more um, pertinent, and and almost like more um, urgent meaning when we pray them as suffering people. You see this actually in the book of Revelation, that picture of 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 the 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 the, the kind of last things that we get in. In Revelation, um, I think it's in chapter 6 where the martyrs, the, the Christian believers who have been put to death because of their faith, are crying out to the Lord, how long? How long, O Lord? Using the language of the Psalms, how long until you come and do justice? How long until you come and make all things new? And that, as, as we've said, is the, is the big idea of this book and it's the big idea of this passage that we've come to this morning looking at the second coming of Jesus and what it means for us as believers. So we've seen um, the last couple of weeks... Uh, a real anxiety in Paul and Timothy and Silvanus, an anxiety for the people back in Thessalonica. I think this really humanizes Paul, who we can sometimes think of as just this, this missionary machine. He's actually worried. He's, he's kind of being kept up at night with worry for the, his his young church back in Thessalonica. You remember he was chased out of town after only about three or four weeks with them and so he's worried for them and he's worried because he's he's afraid that they're um they're being persecuted he's he's afraid that they're being tempted by satan to turn away from their faith he's he's worried that they're going to go back to pagan ways of living we saw last week in terms of the way that they view sexuality he's he's worried for them And and he's also worried for them because he knows that they don't have a full understanding yet of the gospel. He didn't get a chance when he was with them to, to really catechize them well. That is to share with them the fundamentals of the faith. And so this causes him some... Anxiety he says in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before God, our God because of you, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. So that's something that's worrying him, that they, there, there are these things that are lacking in their faith, that he wants to be able to meet with them and fill up what's lacking there. It's not that the gospel is is insufficient or lacking in any way. It's that their understanding of it is incomplete. This causes him some anxiety. I remember experiencing this with Renee um, back the first time, kind of time that we uh, noticed one another um, was when we were both um, serving on a beach mission. Uh, it was called Theo's Beach Mission. It was like we run a, a drop-in center in Malakuta for um, for Malacuta? Yeah, that's where it was. Um, for, for for young adults and teens. And uh, the object was to take all of these people who were on summer holidays and to make a space for them, a safe place for them to hang out um, and to provide opportunities to share the gospel with them. The big problem with that whole thing, and I, I love it, and we, I think I went three, four, maybe even five years running because it was so it was it was such a good use of our time but um the the worry we had was what what happens when you share the gospel with some of these kids and they respond to it and then they go back home no one no one that came into theo's just about lived in Malacuda or anywhere near Malacuta. most of us were from melbourne you know so far away so what happens when you share the gospel with someone and you you might not ever see them again it causes some anxiety and it causes a sense of urgency, like we want to share as much as we can with this person. And there were some in the group who were very blasé about it and were like, well, you just need to trust God and, and, and let them go and you know God will take care of them and he'll, he'll persevere their faith or whatever. But actually, I think some level of anxiety about those people is right. It's what Paul was experiencing here. What happens if nobody takes up the baton? What happens if they go on and on without having a full picture of what the gospel means? So the question for us this morning is, what are they lacking in their faith? What is it that Paul wants to complete? What is it that they don't yet understand? So let's look at chapter 4, verse 13. He says, "'We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters,' Concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So this is the context for our passage. What they're lacking is is an understanding of what happens to brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep. So if you know Paul, you'll know this is one of his, his euphemisms for death. He'll refer to people who have fallen asleep, and what he means is they have died, um, and and so th- th- that's what he means here. That's what he means in in one Corinthians 15. He uses the same euphemism, and the the biggest kind of teaching he does on the resurrection, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So. He's saying they haven't just um, died and are waiting for Jesus' return. They're died and that's it. They're worm food. That it's it's over. They've perished. All of that is true if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So this is his euphemism, and what they're lacking in understanding is what happens to their brothers and sisters who have died. They're uninformed. They just didn't have a chance to get to that part of the gospel message. And so they're feeling hopeless. Verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. That's what they're experiencing in the moment, this sense of hopelessness. Probably, reading between the lines, what they're thinking is, Jesus is coming back any day now, when he comes back, we'll all go to be with him. But what about the brothers and sisters who are in the ground? What about the brothers and sisters who have been put to death? Have they missed out because they didn't live to the day when Jesus returns? And Paul wants to speak to that and reassure them about the, 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 the comfort they can have knowing that those brothers and sisters won't miss out. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But the antidote he presents to them for their hopelessness is is the only ground any of us have for hope as believers. If you want to grab a hold of and be tethered to hope that isn't contingent on the here and now, the in lockdown, out of lockdown dance that we're doing, or the, the have money, have no money dance, or the good... Marriage, bad marriage, doubt. Like if you if you want to have hope that extends beyond the subjective experience of this life, then the only ground you have for that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only hope we have. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where Paul goes every time he wants to give hope. It's the death. And resurrection of jesus which is which makes it so tragic when you have people who don't believe in the death and resurrection of jesus and yes i'm referring to all of your friends and family who don't believe in jesus in the first place but i i also know christians and christian leaders who don't believe in the death and resurrection of jesus That is, they believe he died, they don't believe he rose again. I had a conversation with a minister of a church who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I asked him, what do you you think all of this is referring to then when they talk about resurrection in the Bible? He said, well, um, Jesus was raised in the hearts of his believers, that's what gave them the kind of motivation to get out and share the good news and plant churches and stuff because even though Jesus didn't really rise from the dead because that's a miracle and that's absurd, he rose in their hearts. He kind of gave them uh, the good vibes to, to commit their lives to the, the message of the gospel. Hmm. No. No. If all Jesus did was, was was be raised in the hearts of his friends, then we're screwed. To put it bluntly, all of us. Paul makes this really clear in that passage I referred to, one Corinthians fifteen. If Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. You're still you're 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 you're, you're dead and gone forever. He says that in our passage that. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we won't have our own resurrection. It's only because Jesus was raised that we have any hope that we too will be raised. So in verse 13 and 14, he says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died, those who have fallen asleep. And you can just throw a dart at any one of Paul's letters and you get the same thing. In Romans 6, he says the same thing. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. As was true for Jesus, so it will be true for for us. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you, fellow believers. And again in Romans chapter 8, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So, the absolute bedrock foundation for our hope is the death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus i remember another christian leader this is at a funeral and another christian leader vicar of a church who got up at the funeral and said that the guy who had died um, was now uh, going to be absorbed like a drop into the ocean of God's love, which is just flat out Greek philosophy. It's, It's platonic. It's nonsense. Your destiny and the ground of your hope is not that you will be absorbed like a drop into the ocean of God's love, whatever that means. It's that you will be bodily raised from the dead just like Jesus was and welcomed into a renewed earth where you will live forever free of death and decay and COVID and cancer and Satan and everything Everything that mars God's good creation. That's your hope. That's where He takes them. Don't be hopeless because Jesus died and rose again, and so in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now, in the next couple of verses, He's going to really kind of focus in and address. The, the, their dead friends who have, who have died in the faith. This is the key problem that they're wrestling with, right? What happens to those guys? Well, you know, maybe they've been sawn in two by the Romans, crucified, burned, uh, like you just name it. What ha- like what happens to them? That's the issue, right? So let's read verse 15 through to 17. He says, We say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are still alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the lord he says those those who have died right from his perspective it was you know 10 15 years from our perspective it's the last 2000 years the christians who have died in the faith irrespective of how they have died right all of them will precede us at the resurrection of all people we said it in the creed right we believe in that that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead we believe in the resurrection of the body right so when Jesus comes and the living and the dead rise Paul says actually you know just like a few seconds before we do they're going to go far from being left behind or neglected or lost forever, they're actually going to precede us. What he's saying is there's no disadvantage to them. If you die before Jesus comes back, you're not at any disadvantage. In fact, you're kind of going to have a little bit of a, 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 a pride of place. He will raise them from the dead. They will rise bodily to greet him the Lord who they were faithful to, even to death. Now, before we get into that, the, that what he's just described there, about what's going to happen when Jesus comes, we're going to get into that and try and avoid getting too much into the weeds. But before, before we do, I we need to really make clear that um, all talk all and any talk that you hear about what will happen when Jesus returns, even talk in Scripture. So everything you hear throughout your life about what will happen when Jesus returns, even stuff you read in Scripture is very easily misunderstood. Why? Because we have no frame of reference for what happens when Jesus comes back. It will be utterly unlike anything ever. And so we're prone to misunderstanding. And we have misunderstood things ever since Paul wrote these words down. This passage particularly has been the source of much misunderstanding, which we'll get to in a second. But just, can we just establish that? It's, we're prone to misunderstanding. We need to really ask for God to make clear the things that he wants to make clear and prevent us from going off into the wilderness with this stuff and getting waylaid. We have no frame of reference for what will happen, and so we're reduced to sort of talking in pictures, and and that can lead to some misunderstanding. This is how Tom Wright says it in his commentary on this passage. He says, how do you describe the colour blue to a blind person? If someone has never been able to see, how can you even convey the idea of colour? let alone the difference between colors. That difficulty faces Christians whenever we talk about the new world that God intends to make one day, when Jesus himself reappears and everything is changed. Because everything will be changed, it makes it very hard for us to picture what that will look like exactly. And I think that any attempts to be really concrete about, you know, this is what is going to happen. And there are certain personalities who need that, right? Let's just be clear about this. There are certain personalities who need some certainty about what's going to happen. Those people tend to gravitate towards a theology that gives them a very precise schematic of what will happen in the end times. I just want us to resist that a little bit and embrace some of the ambiguity. What is not ambiguous is that the reigning, ruling Lord Jesus is coming. What's not ambiguous is the end times will be dictated by him to the absolute finest detail. He's in charge and he wins. What's not ambiguous is that we ourselves will be raised like him, in his likeness, that we will receive bodies that cannot die and that we will live with him in the harmonious creation that he has always desired for us. When it comes to this passage, though, there have been some who have taken a couple of verses and run with them as far as they could and have created a whole theology of the end times that is, in my view, a misinterpretation of what Paul's trying to communicate here. So this is where you get the whole idea of the rapture from these verses, almost exclusively. You might have come across this term, you may not. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, don't worry about it. But basically it's this idea that... Um, when the, that at some point in the future, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to, to take with him all the Christians. He's just going to kind of zap them up into the sky. Uh, this is where you get the Left Behind series of books, the movie, uh, and all kinds of cultural references to the rapture. In fact, just the other day on our Zoom call that we were having for our little staff meeting, um, I think Suzanne disappeared into her a fake background um, of the Dad ninongs Nongs or whatever just disappeared from the screen. And I think it was Doug who said, I think Suzanne's been raptured, right? So that idea that people are just going to disappear, um, and, and all the Christians are just going to disappear. And so if you have a Christian guy flying the plane, the plane's going down, um, is a misinterpretation of this passage in my view. Um, there's several reasons to think that it's a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding. Uh, a couple of them would be that there's no explicit reference to that happening in scripture. There's no explicit reference to the Christians being taken away and then and then everyone else kind of being clueless about where they've gone. Um, it's also a very new idea. It's a 19th century kind of theology that grew up in North America where most of the weird stuff <laughs> tends to grow, um, and, and it comes out of this kind of framework, again, this desire to have everything very concrete, everything very mapped out, um, this framework, um, you don't need to know the big words really, but just it's, it's, a, it's pre-millennial dispensationism, uh, pre-tribulational dispensationism is the idea that 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 there needs to be this seven year period between when christians take off to be with jesus and 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 seven years where everything goes to hell and so therefore this forces those people into reading that into this text and it forces them into this understanding that actually there isn't one return of jesus but there's two or oh, there's two stages separated by these seven years. And again, we're getting into the weeds way more than I wanted to, but I feel like I just need to just, just, just hit this one on the head, all right? So in this understanding, this two-stage understanding of Jesus' return, you need to have first this secret return to rapture his people. Um, rapture is just a, a, uh, a translation of that in, in our passage where it says they're caught up. So... Um, Verse 17, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the Lord. So, there's this two-stage thing, right? Back to the two-stage thing. He, th- they think you, there needs to be the secret one where Jesus sort of just pops his head in, but, but it's not the cataclysmic thing that splits the universe apart um, and ushers in the, 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 the renewal of all things. This is just a secret one where he just kind of pops in, grabs all of his people, and then um, and so that believers suddenly vanish without any warning, and those left behind won't know what's happening to them, and, and then Jesus kind of whisks them off back up to heaven, whatever that is. And then the second stage is the real second coming when Jesus will conduct the final judgment, usher in the new creation and all of that. Um, there's, this doesn't exist in the scriptures. You're forced into this by having a very rigid map of what needs to happen at the end times according to our theology. Okay. So the problem with this is it's not in the Scriptures. The problem with this is it's a kind of new invention and there's, there's something to be said for the 1,800 years of theology that people had before that came on the scene. Particularly if you think, as many proponents of this do, that if you don't believe that, then you don't believe the Gospel. Then you've got to deal with 1,800 years of Christians who didn't believe the Gospel because they didn't have your narrow misinterpretation. Anyway, I'm getting off, I'm getting worked up. Um, I don't want to, see, this is the problem with this whole thing. It gets us off into the weeds. It It gets us away from Paul's intention in the first place. The word that he uses there to be caught up with the Lord. If you're ever unsure about, something in scripture it's really good if you can find where else in the scriptures that thing is mentioned to try and grab some more context or grab some more understanding if you can't find it anywhere in the bible you can then go to antiquity you can go to first century literature and find find out where where do they talk about this there and what does it mean for them remember biblical interpretation the essential first step is to figure out what did the original author mean as he communicated to his original audience. So when he talks about being caught up in the air, that that kind of language is used two other times in the New Testament. What does it mean there? In in the parable that Jesus uses it in, which is actually about the second coming, uh, which is apt, and in the book of Acts where Luke mentions it uh, by way of narrative, um, in both cases, this is the big idea, you have... People in a city or in a region and then you have a ruler or a, or a dignitary who comes to that city and the people of the city go out to meet the ruler and then they return into the city together. So that's the, that language of being caught up, that, that's, that's what's going on, that's the, that's the mechanics of it. People in a city a ruler or dignitary comes to that city outside the city limits. They meet him, and then they usher him in, probably with some fanfare, like, hey, everybody, that this famous guy's here. So then, if that's the picture Paul wants us to have, then we get a very different idea about what Jesus' return is, is about. Here's how I've said it in the, in, in the study guide, which none of you have because I haven't finished it yet. And my plan is always to have this to you before um, this, the series starts, but stuff has happened. So I'm, I'm still hoping to get this to you soon. But um, in the, the little study for, for this week's passage, here's, here's what, how I've put it. It says, um, In contrast to the picture of Jesus secretly returning to earth, and making a quick escape with his people back to heaven, Paul actually describes one where King Jesus meets his people in the clouds, and then the whole company actually return to the earth where Jesus rules and makes all things new. So no two-stage return, no seven-year separation, just one enormous, earth-shattering, cataclysmic event. So you have his return, our resurrection, the final judgment, and the renewal of all things in one massive event. That's the second coming of Jesus. That's the day of the Lord that Paul's going to refer to in the next chapter that we'll get to next week. That's our hope. That's what we're hanging out for. That's what Christians all through the centuries who have suffered have been crying out for. They've been crying out that Jesus would come and in one fell swoop make all things new. Rule and reign on the earth, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, (laughs) that's all fine. And by the way, uh, I expect probably someone in our congregation have, have kind of hold to the the rapture thing, the two-stage return thing, the seven-year thing, um, and, and because I don't believe that this makes you a Christian or not, then that's fine. Uh, this is not a deal-breaker in any sense. If you want to chat more about it, I'd love to, um, because I think it's important. It's just not that important. Uh, and here's the thing. Here's the problem with some of these theological debates and little skirmishes we have. They get us away from... The Point of the passage in the first place? What's, the, what's Paul's point? What's his purpose? The purpose of this passage is it, 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 it's, Paul is not trying to predict the future, he's trying to encourage the church. And we risk losing that encouragement if we go off to fight all of these battles over what he precisely means. When we try and impose on him this desire to predict the future, Perfectly according to the map, the schematic, the whatever. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to encourage us. So that's where I want to land this thing, okay? You get this in the bookends of the passage. So in the first verse, in, in verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that, purpose clause, right? So that you will not. Grieve like the rest who have no hope. And then the other bookend, verse 18, therefore, having said all of this about the second coming of Jesus, therefore, not therefore go and design all your maps and schematics and force everybody into your very narrow bandwidth. No, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage. His purpose is, is to comfort and encourage. Not to predict the future, but to pastor the heart. And he goes on, and we'll get to this next week, but in in verse 11 of chapter 5, after he goes through some more um, description and discussion around the day of the Lord, he says, therefore, encourage one another. And build each other up as you are already doing. Comfort, encourage, edify. That's what we're meant to do with this. This gives you a ministry. This passage gives you a ministry. It gives you a ministry to grieving people. This is not just something that we send the chaplains off to do in hospitals and hospices. It's not something that we just subcontract out to our wonderful pastoral care team. This is your ministry to anyone who is grieving. I have a complicated relationship with grief, to be honest with you. Uh, I do not have this worked out at all. Um, my relationship with grief is sometimes tumultuous I have uh, to this day a big debt to pay for spending a lot of my life bottling grief I don't know if you can relate to this but uh, and this is common for people like, like in my case who experience trauma or grief at a very young age our body deals with this in a really wonderful way it protects us in a really wonderful way by kind of compartmentalising that, that experience and, and putting some distance between oneself and the grief we've experienced but, but I can say from the day my mum died fell asleep uh, in Jesus as a uh, just turned 8 years old until today I've spent a lot of that time like, keeping that going well beyond its expiry date that is compartmentalizing, bottling, um, and and then I've had these brief periods where I've just grieved like those who have no hope. So it's this wild swing between oh, I'm not going to feel this. I'm not. I don't want to. It's too scary. I can't. I can't deal with this. Um, it's much better just to say she'll be right and just you know everything will be okay um and inoculate yourself to grief like so many christians do like well you know it's everything i've got the joy of the lord right through tears and then or swinging into grieving like those who have no hope like the pagans did in Thessalonica right just going around screaming and tearing their clothes and cutting themselves on account of grief grieving like those who have no hope my experience has been complicated i during my leave i wrote this article for the gospel coalition um, at Mother's Day, it was called um, Mother's Day for the Motherless, and the most common response I had to people who read that was just, eek, like this guy's got some issues. There was just a, I was just felt a lot of things writing that, and it's because I have a lot of repressed grief. What you can do for the eight-year-old or the 40-year-old who was the 8-year-old, or what you can do for the 88-year-old who has just lost their husband of 60 years, what you can do for anyone who is grieving, grieving the loss of a loved one who loved and trusted Jesus, what you can do for them is be a comfort and an encouragement. Don't be that Christian who goes to them. Well, well, you know, you shouldn't cry. I've I've heard that advice in this church, and thank God I I jumped on it immediately. But I've heard it said, "Well, we shouldn't cry because you know we believe in the heaven." Nonsense. You see, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. His friend has died. And he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, and even then he weeps. Because it sucks. Death is wrong. Jesus, through whom all things were created, hates death. Death is an offense to him, it's a smear on his good creation. It's actually his final enemy, which he will finally defeat at his second coming. Death is wrong. Don't say to someone, don't grieve. What you say to them is, don't grieve like those who have no hope. That's the Christian response. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Don't tell them not to weep. Don't paste it over with some kind of fake Christian facade, smiley face, happy clappy, it's going to be all right. All right. Deeply grieve because death is grievous. But do not grieve like those who have no hope. When Jesus returns, and it could be before the end of this service, it could be in 25,000 years, When Jesus returns the dead shall rise and those of us who are alive at the time when he returns will rise with them and meet him as the ruling reigning king of the universe and then all of us together with shouts and fanfare and champagne and partying will return to the earth where Jesus will Renew all things, resurrect all things, recreate all things to be as they should be and will be forever. That's our hope. That's what I want us to hang on to in the midst of pandemic and even as so many Christians have done in the midst of persecution to the point of death. Come Lord Jesus, let's pray together. Father, many of us are weary, many of us are worn down by our circumstances, Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of us have had it far worse over the last 2,000 years. Some have been fed to wild animals. Some have been torn in two. Some have been burned alive. Many have been crucified just like the Lord Jesus. And their hope and ours is the second coming of Jesus. And so we pray, even in the midst of our own grief and our own tumult, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. How long will you delay? Please come. We yearn for the day where we're caught up with you in that great celebration. We yearn for the day when you remake and renew all things, including our bodies and this good earth. In the meantime, Lord, please help us to grieve with hope. Please make us ministers to those around us. Please make us ambassadors for the King who is coming. Please make us agents of reconciliation between lost people and the Lord Jesus. Please help us to share the good news of the coming King with those who don't yet know it. We don't want anyone to perish and we know that part of the reason you're delaying is because of your patience, that you want to see people repent So we pray for an outpouring of your spirit, that we would see many come to know you and love you and put their trust ultimately in you. Please make this church a church of the resurrection. Please give us resurrection hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.